If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you know how we make roads? Asphalt, for instance, it's generally made of materials such as crushed rock. So we can make the roads out of materials that we have. And now that everyone is interested in going back to the moon and developing sites there, the question is, aren't they going to need roads to do that? And if they do, how are they going to build them? Well, you know what? There's a team that is working on that very question. Dr. Jens Gunster is the Director of Division Ceramic Processing and Biomaterials at Germany's Federal Institute for Materials Research and Testing and is with us now to tell us all about it. Dr. Gunster, thank you so much for being here. Hi. So how do you even start with something like this? You want to build a road on the moon. Where do you start? Yeah, that's a different question. So basically, as a researcher, you look what exists already and uh, there have been experiments on melting lunar dust and these experiments show that you can consolidate lunar dust to some material would say some glass and so our, uh, our option and uh, mission was uh, to really um, ramp up a production of this uh, mold materials up to a scale where you can think of building infrastructure like roads or landing pads or even shelters so all those samples of moon dust that they've been bringing back, now we know why they're so useful. Yeah, actually, <laughs> we are not using moon dust for our experiments, uh, original moon dust, but you're right, they're very valuable to learn what is the composition and uh, what we use is a kind of substitute of that material which you can find on Earth. So tell me about your experiment then. What are, what are you doing? How's your work going? Yeah, so our... Uh, idea within the project was that we uh, scale up the laser melting process. Uh, we use the laser instead of uh, focused sunlight. That's simply out of convenience in a sense because you have clouds, you depend on the weather, and you need to collect a lot of energy. So we use a powerful laser, about 1,000 watt laser power output. And uh, our idea was uh, to really run and focus it to, uh, into a large laser spot, 100 millimeter diameter. So this is generally uh, not done. You try to focus to a sharp spot, maybe to engrave something or to melt locally. But we just want to pave. We want to glaze a surface. So we use these large laser spots. Okay. And so is it working? And I guess then I wonder, how are you going to get this to the moon? Like, how big is this? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. So, Actually, it's working fine, let's say that, in the lab. So we, a uh, large laser spot is good to uh, consolidate uh, deep layers of the material. You can easily imagine when you have a small laser spot, you just form a drop, something like a molten little pearl. But when you have a real fat melt pool, what I said about 100 millimeters diameter, then you will melt into the depths of the material. So we reached about a 25 millimeters really solid material. The question to how to carry such equipment to the moon, that's, uh, of course, um, the second concern then. 
we think it will not be carried to the moon, so the laser uh, weighs tons, uh, and you need electronics and sophisticated um, installation. What we think of, and generally the community think of, is uh, you, uh, you concentrate sunlight to a spot and substitute the laser later on by sunlight. So it sounds like, from the way you're describing it then, this is possible, this is within reach to do something like this. Yeah, exactly. So the project was funded by the European Space Agency. And I mean, their belief in that idea to consolidate uh, lunar dust, so Regolith is uh, the umbrella name for that. And um, of course, they believe uh, that they can carry such a lens to the moon. Such a lens is not the clumsy optical lens, which you may imagine. So it's a kind of a foil, which can be folded. It's a Fresnel lens type. So this means it's a structured foil. And this uh, can concentrate the light into a spot of what we said about uh, 50 or 100 millimeters. Now, Dr. Gunter, is there a lot of interest in this? Because there does seem to be a lot of interest in going back to the moon and building there, doesn't there? Exactly. And uh, now... Uh, people think uh, of staying for a longer time on the moon and also you, you think of that there are different nations may aim to go to the moon and travel to the moon and um, that's kind of, um, you want to avoid to contaminate equipment, especially maybe from neighbors or whatever. So you think about uh, how can you reduce the emission of dust when you, for example, land a rocket and you restart a rocket or you run a rover over the moon surface. Does it seem amazing that after all these years, like we're ramping up and talking about going back to the moon? Because for a long time, there was no interest in doing something like this. Yeah, that's that's true. It's uh, for me also surprising in a sense. So I'm more a material scientist and process scientist and not a really space scientist. But on the other hand, I can well understand this trend because um, space is uh, important for communication we have seen that in different events very recently, how important it is to have satellites to establish communication. And, I mean, from the moon, that's a kind of stationary platform. This is within reach. And also we dream of going to the Mars. And uh, this could be, this such a travel could start from moon. It absolutely could. I can see that happening. Well, thank you so much for your time and describing it to us this morning. Okay. My pleasure. So interesting. That's Dr. Jens Gunster, who's a director of Division Ceramic Processing and Biomaterials at Germany's Federal Institute for Materials Research and Testing. They are spending their time trying to figure out how to build roads on the moon, because yes, that's where we are at. It does remind me so much of the show, and I'm going to say it again. If you have not watched For All Mankind on Apple, you absolutely should. It is so good. This is Mornings with Simi. Ah, such a great song. Lucky people are going to hear Guns N' Roses in concert tonight. We gave away tickets here on the show. I'm so excited for you to be able to go and to hear this. And you know who else was really excited about this possibility? Was our contributor, Scott Shantz, who's with us now. Now, Scott, I'm doing this because... I'm doing this because we love sure. you. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And because Thank the Mornings you. with Simi show has a reputation to uphold among the people that we work with. Would I you understand. agree with that? Yes, I do. I understand. Get it over so with, please. When I find out that someone on our team hit reply all to a company like email. Yes. I'm humiliated with you, Scott. I know. So I'm what humiliated happened here? too. Well, every now and then, because we work in 
media and radio, an extra pair of tickets ends up floating around. Like we'll give one away and a, yes. and a winner says, oh, I actually can't use these. And then we try to reallocate them or figure out what to do with them. And occasionally, sometimes an extra tic- pair of tickets ends up up for grabs. Very true. Yes. And usually the people in the promotions department will say, hey, like in this case, we have an extra pair of tickets for Guns N' Roses on Monday night. Who would like them? If enough people would like them, we'll do a draw on Monday. And I assume that like a ton of people will want these Obviously, tickets. Obviously, yes. So I saw this email on Friday, and I don't work on Fridays. I'm not in the office because uh, I do the show on Sunday. And I saw this email and got really, really excited and hit reply and all. said, well, reply, I, you hit reply in, my, all, in my mind, I hit Scott. reply and said, oh, my gosh, I'm so excited for Guns N' Roses. Like, please, please, please put me in the draw. And then also the gentleman that I was replying to hooked me up with tickets to Adam Sandler. So I was like, by the way, thanks. Good to see you at Adam Sandler last night. Thanks for the fun. Oh, I, owe you, I owe you a beer. Scott. I know. I know. It's like that. And then I owe you a beer. And then I hit send. And then when you hit reply all, because you're on all of the email reply lists, it shows up in your inbox. And I'm like, oh, that's uh, that's weird. Why did it come back to me? I was sending it to our friend in promotions. And then I clicked on it and was like, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, dear. Because there's so many people on that. It's like everyone that works in Vancouver in this company. I personally believe there's a special place in hell for people who reply all. It was a mistake. It was an honest mistake. I was excited. Do you want to take this moment to apologize to the people that you work with for doing that? I am very sorry to the people first most on this team that I have shamed us. Okay. Thank you. us, Simi, Greg, and Bianca, I apologize. And then furthermore, I apologize to everyone in the office who saw my stupid email to promotions <laughs> where, A, I, I acknowledged that I already got a free pair of tickets last week. Yeah, and now and you then, wanted another pair of tickets. I want another tickets. one. I know. So, I feel so stupid. We accept your apology. I'm just going to say you should be prepared in a couple of hours for when Jill Bennett comes to work because she will have something to say about this. Yeah, it feels really, really silly. And uh, I I think, uh, yeah. uh, Well, thank you for that. We appreciate your apology. (sighs) Don't let it happen again. I will do my best to make sure that that never happens again. But seriously, if there are tickets to Guns N' Roses tonight, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them, make make sure Scott doesn't get them. That's like my penance. Yeah, that is your penance. Uh, But let's talk about concerts since we're on that topic because. To see this news that the number one, by a long shot, yeah. movie over the weekend was a concert movie, Scott, it surprised even me because I thought, who would pay that kind of money just to go and watch a concert on the big screen? Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about the Taylor Swift era's tour video. So Taylor Swift is on this big era's tour. We know she didn't have a date here in 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 Vancouver, excuse me, but sold out six shows in Toronto, a bunch of shows all over the world. It's making more money than any tour ever, yada, yada, yada. Uh, they recorded that that show in LA that they did and turned it into a movie so you can go and watch it on the big screen. And I'm like you, I don't ca- I want to see the artist in person. I don't want to go and right. sit in a movie theater and see it. But given that the demand for going to see this far outstripped the amount of tickets that were available, I can see that there would be a lot of pent up fan, like people who couldn't afford to go and see sure. this and thought a $20 ticket or, you know, $30 to go and see this is almost as good as going to see them in concert. Yeah, I, I guess so. So I think it what it has to do with is like the part of the concert what's so great about a concert is like the shared experience and I think that that's what this is too so all the Swifties and Taylor Swift fans I have a bunch of them on my Instagram and I like I know people are mad about it like mad crazy about it 
like at the box offices all over the country, it was swarmed. It was like shoulder to shoulder, people fighting to get tickets, to get in. And then you've seen some of the videos inside the theater. It's like an actual concert atmosphere. People are standing and cheering. And I'm like, she can't hear you. It's a scream. She can't. Listen, that set an October box office record, yeah. which is uh, unreal when you think about it. And she knows how to market that. I you mean, she bet. showed up on Saturday Night Live just to introduce Ice Spice. Yep. She, you know, was out all weekend, definitely making herself seen. Like, she knows how to market this. And clearly it shows more economic power on her part because we already know that she is like a oh. absolute bombshell in that area. And think about it this way. They have already spent all this money to set the tour up, right? The tour is happening anyway. So her or someone in her camp was like, you know what? Let's just, you know, say we spent $100 million to put the show on. Let's add a couple million to that just to put some cameras around and record all of this, right? It's not like- Beyonce they did it. Totally, right? And Beyonce is another person that has this incredible business acumen around- everything that she does. Like, it's not like they had to hire a bunch of actors. Everyone is already on the payroll. They didn't have to build a set. They didn't have to do like any special of all that stuff is already happening. They just filmed it and it turned into a hundred million dollars extra in one weekend. Like gross that the tour has been. It's just crazy to me. It is crazy, but you know, there will be more to come. There will be the, the home release, right? That you can download this. You can have your own copy of this, its own version. That will also be, I think, huge sales. Yeah. Back in the day, we would have said there will be the DVD release, but they don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, this is just, it's open on domestically and then on a bunch of screens internationally, but they're adding it more and more countries are adding it now. Like it hasn't premiered in like Brazil and a bunch of other countries yet. That's still to come. So they're expecting it to continue to have huge audiences and make big money like for weeks and weeks and weeks to come. And it's so funny to me, like the fan, you know about the friendship bracelet thing? I thought this was so funny. Taylor Swift fans, like it's from a line in a song that she sings about trading friendship bracelets. So fans are taking them and trading them at the concert, meeting people at the concert and trading friendship bracelets. Now they're doing that at the movie. Like they've taken the whole concert experience into the movie theater. It's crazy. You could teach this in an economics class. I think you could teach the economics of Beyonce, Taylor Swift, and the the direct-to-market machine that they have. Absolutely, yeah. And teach that. It is absolutely fascinating. Anybody out there who lives with a Taylor Swift fan I think knows the kind of impact that she can have. And and I think that's new for Hollywood, right? They looked at that and thought, what, Definitely. are you kidding me? You can make that kind of movie on a concert or money on a concert? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, the overhead is is not, they're already doing it. Negligible, they're already yeah. doing it. And then they just Pure turn profit. the cameras on. It's so smart and so genius. And now the movie theater owners also love yeah. Taylor Swift. How right? can you not? She's How so great. <laughs> Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. Busy day in Victoria. We're going to find out why that is. Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun joins us. Good morning, Vaughn. Yeah, good morning, Simi. The day starts at 9 o'clock with a tech briefing, goes through the morning with a press conference with the Premier, legislation introduced in the House at 10, and again when it sits in the afternoon. And I think somewhere in there, Simi, the uh, party leaders are also going to be making statements on what happened in the Middle East. So we've got a busy day ahead of us. All right, well, let's start with the crackdown on short-term vacation rentals. Yes. So the Democrats have been talking about this for a while. They're very concerned that the free and easy market for short-term vacation rentals, Airbnb and that sort of thing, is cutting seriously into the availability of longer-term rental housing. 
And they've also semi been hearing complaints from cities that are trying to crack down on it and, and tighten regulation of Airbnb that they lack the power, they lack the data, they can't impose fines large enough to stop the practice. So all of that is going to be addressed. Uh, we're getting a technical briefing. That usually means a fairly long piece of legislation. And then the premier himself uh, telling us what it all means. The bill will be tabled in the House at 10 a.m. The premier is going to be telling us what it all means at 10.30. Okay, so this has been something that the, a lot of municipalities have been, been crying for for yeah. quite a while. Yeah, it is. And the tension here is that the free and easy um, availability, uh, being able to get your hands on a condominium or a basement suite or whatever and uh, make it available on Airbnb uh, is great. It creates a revenue stream, no doubt, for the owner. And, and some owners, Simi, that are struggling to pay their mortgages are going, yeah, well, you know, the province has capped rent at 3.2%, which doesn't begin to cover the cost of inflation. So I'm going Airbnb because you can make more money that way. So that's what's going on. Uh, investors are also snapping up properties and turning them straight overnight into Airbnb. And the municipalities, you're right, Simi, say, well, <laughs> a lot of this isn't what was originally intended. You know, we could fine people for not getting licenses to do this, but the fines are so small that the Operators just treat that as part of the cost of doing business. There is also talk of saying, look, the idea of, you know, making ends meet by renting out your basement suite is one thing. I mean, making it available on Airbnb, but, you know, we could make it a rule, and they've tried to do this, that you have to be living elsewhere in the building. So you can't, like, buy a condo on the other side of town and make it Airbnb. So that's the area we're in. We don't know how much detail there's going to be today, but we have been told it's going to make the fines and the data collection and the regulation easier. And that, the province believes, should make a difference. Right, because I'm assuming a lot of this they're going to want to kick to the municipal level, right? Because as you point out, many people, that's how they got their mortgage. They're counting on the revenue from a short-term vacation rental to make that mortgage payment. No, I mean, that's true. The NDP uh, is more than a little two-faced on the issue of wanting rental. They want more rental. They want more rental built. But they've also capped rents at a level that many developers and landlords say doesn't allow them, especially if you're building something new, doesn't allow them to recover costs. So uh, they're putting the squeeze on landlords that way. Uh, This will put further squeeze on people who, as you say, Simi, uh, were able to make their mortgage payments with higher interest rates because they had the superior cash flow coming from Airbnb. So this could have an unintended effect on the NDP's desire to get a lot more rental housing in the market. Yeah, I could see. And homeowners might not be happy about that, though, to think that they're going to be punished for this one. This is the only way they're making ends meet. Yeah, but when you talk to New Democrats on this, they talk about landlords and they mean giant corporations and investors. They don't mean ordinary people with one house 
with a basement suite in it who are trying to make the mortgage payments with both of them working. They're not, that's not what they're talking about. The NDP is targeting, you know, as they always do, big corporations and nasty landlords and all that. And those are out there, but so are the people who are going to be victimized by the unintended consequences of this, same as people were victimized by the NDP's cap on rental increases. And, you know, that's what's driving the story you did last week on what happens when two people have taken the place together and one of them moves out. Well, the landlord tries to put the rental property back on the market at a higher rent because he or she is trying to make more money off their rental, maybe to make a profit, maybe just so they can meet their mortgage payment. Okay, so is it possible then what the government's going to do here is here, here we're, we're allowing you to do this. And now if you want to do X, Y, Z, we're going to leave it to the municipality to do that. Yeah, yeah we'll see. If it's, if it's fair, if it's not too interventionist, it'll deal with the problem that the municipalities have flagged, which is too many people taking advantage of Airbnb and breaking the rules, either not having a license or turning a blind eye to the fact that uh, they're not disclosing what's going on, or just turning, uh, buying up property for Airbnb into a business, into an investment business. All of that is out there. We'll see if they can manage a surgical strike on the abuses without uh, creating a whole lot of collateral damage for people that are into vacation rentals because they have to be to service their mortgage. All right, we're talking with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun this morning. It's going to be a busy day in Victoria. We've heard that there is legislation coming to deal with short-term vacation rentals. But yes, there's also legislation coming to do with policing, Vaughn. Yeah, so the province promised a full-blown review of the Police Act, and the legislature committee did that, made a whole bunch of recommendations. And the government originally said, well, you know, these are... There's an awful lot of stuff here to digest, and we're going to take our time doing this. But we're now getting some amendments to the Police Act today. And the context, Simi, is provided by this fascinating, never-ending standoff between the province and Surrey over whether or not Surrey goes ahead with a new standalone police force or whether council gets what it wants to do and go back to the RCMP, as you know, Simi, uh, I was among the many who thought they'd settled this. New Democrats certainly thought they'd settle this in July, back on the 17th, three months ago. Turns out, uh, no, they didn't. The battle continues. And what we're getting today, we're told, Simi, is never again legislation. Legislation that will make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again We'll also see whether they've figured out some way to reverse what's happened in Surrey. Okay, and we got a response from Surrey, too. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And Friday afternoon, classic, right, comes the bombshell. So we had this leaked letter from the Provincial Director of Policing Services to Surrey's mayor, Brenda Locke, accusing her and her council of foot-dragging On the provincial government order back in July, the province said, no, you can't go back to the RCMP. Your plan doesn't work. You have to stick with the Surrey Policing Services, so let's get on with it. So the provincial director of policing services writes a letter which, by some mysterious process, gets leaked to the news media. (laughs) Right. Far be it for me to speculate on who might have been in the interest of doing that. But anyway, the letter said, look, you're dragging your feet. Get on with it. And the letter gave the mayor of Surrey 
a deadline. Surrey Council was given until Friday the 13th, October, to respond and get on with it. Well, there was a response on Friday, Simi, but it wasn't exactly the response the province was looking for. Surrey went to court and is basically saying the province doesn't have the power to force this issue and that Surrey, the duly elected council of the city of Surrey, uh, has the power and the ability and the impetus to go ahead with its plan to go back to the RCMP. Uh, Surrey is asking BC Supreme Court to order a judicial review of the provincial government's decision. So it's all up in the air again. It's so interesting that they put Peter German forward to be kind of the <laughs> face of this, isn't it? Because we've been waiting to hear from Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke, but she, they're just putting Peter German out there now. Yeah, so so Locke's response to the letter from the Director of Policing Services was, why are you writing me? That's a rude letter. You should talk to staff. But her reply comes through Peter German. And here's why that's Surrey kind of sticking it to the provincial government. Peter German, former deputy director of the RCMP, and he has a degree in criminology. He was David Eby's go-to guy when David Eby, as a cabinet minister, was trying to make the case that the BC Liberals had completely neglected the problem of money laundering. Uh, German was the guy he cited all the time. And I, I, I was remembering, I can hear Eby's voice at press conference after press conference referring to Dr. German. It was always Dr. German. He had a PhD. And that just added authority to David Eby's case. He, and, and so here we are, the doctor is in. He's not working the for the council. We wouldn't know German's what Peter German. We, right? we wouldn't know who Peter German even was. That name would not be familiar to us yeah. if not for the NDP government. So the guy doing the talking for Surrey on Friday afternoon, he was, he was on NW and elsewhere, is Doctor Peter German, uh, and what he says is that the province doesn't have the authority. But he also he also didn't just cite the legislation. He's a lawyer. Lawyers have opinions about what legislation say, but the other thing he made it clear was he said, and this is what the issue is, this is what the fight is really about. He says, the provincial government has offered Surrey $150 million over five years to cover the cost of continuing the transition to Surrey policing services. And Dr. German says that isn't nearly enough. The analysis by Surrey. City Council staff at Surrey is that doesn't begin to cover the cost. And you, you, you take that and you go, well, is it surprising Surrey Council believes its own staff on this issue? The reason Surrey is fighting this thing is because they do believe that it's going to cost a lot more than $150 million. They believe that will force Surrey Council to raise taxes and where the cost, and by fighting it in court, they're trying to plant the idea in the minds of some Surrey ratepayers, even if they don't win the case, and they may not, that if Surrey ratepayers have to pay more than expected for the cost of setting up the new policing service, it's Victoria's fault. This is not something that Surrey 
council wanted to do. Right. But don't you think, Vaughn, there was an opportunity here for Surrey Council to say it's going to cost more, you need to pay for it, and the province might have done that? You know, that may, you know, that's an interesting idea, Simi, that this may just be bargaining. I mean, some municipalities were astonished when the New Democrats announced last July that they want Surrey to continue the course on the new policing services. And by the way, we're going to give you 150 million bucks to pay for it, right? And a lot of municipalities went, wait a minute, why should, why should every other municipality in BC have to cover the cost of a decision that was made in Surrey? So the New Democrats put $150 million on the table. They've already indicated a willingness to essentially bribe Surrey to stay the course because politically there's an election next year and there are an awful lot of seats in Surrey represented by New Democrats. So and people are saying Brenda Locke and the council are thinking about the next election. It's not the next civic election they're thinking about. That's what, three years away, they're, you're right, Simi, maybe they're just bargaining with the province to put more money on the table Who knows? Uh, to top up the $150 million with more money, and that's what it'll take to settle this thing. I don't know. I don't know either. Who does at this point? Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So let's return to the big story, of course, coming out of the Middle East, where the international community is calling for humanitarian aid and the protection of Israeli and Palestinian civilians that are fleeing from the war. And we know that conditions in Gaza continue to deteriorate. And is there anything really that Canada can do at this point to help? We know the United States has been very actively involved in this. U.S. President Joe Biden is planning a trip to that area. Now, we have Jeff Semple, the senior correspondent for Global News National, who is in the area, has been on the ground, and we've reached him by phone this morning, and I know things are tense there. Jeff, thanks so much for this. Hey, Sammy, great to be with you. What What's happening where you are right now, and where are you? Well, we're in, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and there's just been a bit of confusion and um, a little bit of tension here in the last uh, several minutes. There was some, uh, we heard some explosions coming. Uh, from the direction um, of uh, the old city in, in Jerusalem, possibly the West Bank. We're just trying to figure out uh, exactly what's going on there right now. But from the very preliminary reports we've seen, I think it was just some rocket fire coming from Gaza that was intercepted uh, by Israel's Iron Dome. Of course, it's uh, impressive air defense system. So it looks like none of the rockets made it through, but it was enough. They were fired, according to these reports, um, at both Jerusalem and uh, Tel Aviv. And uh, it was enough that they had to, they interrupted the Knesset. Of course, the Israeli parliament was sitting. I believe uh, the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was, was speaking. Uh, and then the sirens went and um, they, uh, they had to evacuate uh, during that session. So rocket fire, uh, you know, not unusual in Israel, but uh, slightly more unusual to see it um, in Jerusalem, particularly around the old city. Right. And I know in the last few days, you've actually been kind of right on the ground in some of the areas. And and you were, I saw on social media, you were at the home or the former home of Canadian peace activist Vivian Silver. What did you find? Yeah, that was heart-wrenching. Activist um, Vivian Silver, she's 74 years old, really dedicated the entirety of her adult life 
uh, to fighting for peace in the Middle East and particularly advocating for human rights for Palestinians and those living in Gaza. He was born and raised in Winnipeg, but moved to um, moved here to Israel um, after university. And she's launched a number of different aid groups and organizations. She really is just a champion for Palestinian human rights. So it's this horrible, ironic twist that she, uh, from what we've heard, has become uh, has been taken hostage, we believe, by Hamas. She was one of those, uh, we think, who were captured in the early hours of the attack on Saturday morning. She lived very close to the Gaza border, in part because she was that dedicated to helping the people of Gaza. She would, uh, you know, often pick up people in Gaza who were sick at the border and then drive them to hospitals in Israel. Uh, it seems that Hamas, Hamas has taken her captive, um, but her her son lives in Tel Aviv, uh, and he, he 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 didn't know much information about what might have happened in her community. But the last he had heard from her was a text message where she said, "They're in the house." Since then, she hasn't been answering her phone. He hadn't been able to access her house himself. But we had the opportunity to go to her community, her kibbutz called Beri, right on the Gaza border. Uh, and we were able to track down her house. And it was a sad scene. It has been burned to a crisp. I mean, the structure is still standing, but everything inside was burned. Uh, you can make out a couple of you know old appliances, maybe a television, uh, an electrical cord, but that was about it. Um, so it's awful mm. to think that, uh, you know, the last text message she sent was that, she, you know, they're in the house and there's nothing left of her house. Uh, but so far as we know now, all these days later, they still haven't identified her among any of the remains. So her son is hoping she's still alive, even though that in and of itself is a grim prospect. Right. And what do we know? Speaking of that, what do we know at this point of the of the likelihood of a ground invasion? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been the question for a few days now. It was, a, you know, a lot of anticipation heading up to midnight on Friday. That was the deadline that the U.N. said Israel had set, basically saying, you know, get the civilians out of North Gaza, push them to send them to the south before midnight Friday. But of course, now here we are on Monday. Still no Israeli ground assault on Gaza. Uh, and when that will happen is really anyone's guess. You know, I've asked the Israeli military about that. They say they're set and ready to go and just waiting for the order from the government. Uh, there's speculation that perhaps, you know, Israel is, is concerned about the, you know, the welfare of the citizens in Gaza or at least the optics of that and that they are trying to sort of deal with that situation before they move in, perhaps some kind of humanitarian corridor for people who are in southern Gaza, because at this night, this point, they are trapped. The only viable route out of there uh, is Egypt, and Egypt has shut that door and not allowing any of them to come through. And there's also, speaking of the hostages, speculation that perhaps Israel is still working to rescue around um, 200 hostages. Uh, they actually said this morning the number, I believe, is 199 Israelis who are who were taken hostage uh, by Hamas and, um, you know, many of whom are still believed to be alive and being held there. So it's possible Israel is trying to come to some resolution there before launching the ground invasion as well. But at this point, we really don't know and can only speculate. But it does sound inevitable and imminent, given the language we've heard from Israeli officials at late, that it's not a matter of if but when ground forces will move into Gaza. Right. And I understand that U.S. President Joe Biden might be coming to Israel. Yeah, so I think there's uh, there's ex- uh, speculation that um, that perhaps uh, that might happen on Wednesday. 
Um, but yeah, that's, and we know Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, is actually in here in Israel today. He's, um, he's been doing a tour of the region. A right. uh, big part of his visit is to try and not only shore up support, but send a signal to other countries, other groups in this region, namely Iran and Hezbollah, to try and deter them from becoming involved. Uh, we've heard threatening language from Iran and Hezbollah that if there were to be a ground assault, that they might get involved. And of course, that would turn this conflict around Gaza into a regional war. And so that's why the U.S. is here. And presumably that's also why the U.S. president would be coming later this week. Well, Jeff, thank you for the update. Stay safe. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking in the last week about rental situations and what happens when two people are living together, maybe roommates, and then one person decides to move out. And then what do you do? Are you allowed to keep the place? Do you not keep the place? And, you know, trying to find a new place these days is incredibly challenging. So our Scott Chance has been digging into this. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good, yeah. So there's two sides to every story in a situation like this, obviously. And on Friday, I spoke with Hunter Boucher. He's the VP of Operations at Landlord BC. They're a group that advocates for the rights of the landlord in situations like this. Here is just a, a second of my interview with him that just gives you an idea of like the landlord side of this. Do you think that there is a danger of landlords taking advantage of situations like this? Because in often cases, those rental increases are more than the province allows as an annual increase for current tenants. Well, I think that what needs to be looked at here is kind of, first of all, the fundamentals behind what, why this exists in the first place. And, the, and really, it comes down to allowing tenants to try to mitigate their loss when it comes to ending a tenancy. If we couldn't come to an actual end of tenancy in this situation, they would be remain on the hook, as it were, uh, for that tenancy. That, that situation they entered into originally is ending. From then on, it's a completely brand new tenancy. And that is a risk when renting with multiple people, that that might happen, that your roommate might leave. And, and if your roommate leaves, it might mean an end of tenancy. And that's something that you, you need to be very aware of when entering that type of, of housing situation. So, so that is the case. Like if you and I, Simi, are on a lease together, like we go and rent a place and it was rented to Scott and Simi, if one of us moves out, the lease is broken. And the landlord can now ha- start a new lease with whoever wants to stay. But because it's a new lease, there's no limit on how much they want to increase the rent. Okay, so I can see why this would be incredibly troublesome because the person who might want to stay is like, hey, right. I'm just going to get another roommate right. and I'm going to continue on. But they can't do that. Well, there are some circumstances where they can, you know, and speaking with Hunter there, you know, he's advocating for the rights of landlords. And I get that because what you don't want is a bunch of te- a tenant to just be like, oh, my roommate left, so I'm going to leave too. And now the landlord is left in a situation where he he had a he had tenants and has to go and find new tenants. But I mean, this is Vancouver. How hard is it to find new Not tenants here? Hard, no. So it's it's tough to take the landlord's side. But one of the ways that you can protect yourself, it, it turns out it's an issue of actually definition and the wording that you use in your contract. I spoke to uh, Emma Laszlo. She's a public legal education coordinator at the Tenancy Resource and Advisory Center. And she gave me some advice on this. Here's part of my interview with her. Okay, when you say roommates, you have to have in mind something that is called co-tenancies. So roommates, um, it's a very wide and broad uh, definition, I would say. So 
you have to start thinking about co-tenancies, which is two people's name in a contract, right? And that makes them roommates. But at the same time, they are called co-tenants. So if one of them leaves, then that could have the effect for the other to terminate the tenancy, and it is up to the landlord to give them permission to either stay put or move out. So the moment one of the roommates gives notice to move out, that has the effect to terminate the tenancy for the other because both tenants are legally and severely responsible. But you have to think in terms of co-tenancy. Okay, so when would you qualify that? At the beginning of a lease, or can you change that during? Or, like, how do you make sure that you have co-tenancy so that you have that option? Okay, the best-case scenario would be for people to do tenants in common, which would be each tenant would have their own tenancy agreement. So you and I are tenants, right? So then you have your own contract, I have my own contract, I can terminate, and you would be safe. But if both of our names are in a contract, um, then and you're going to move out, then you are affecting my tenancy. The moment you decide to give notice, you may be ending my tenancy as well. I mean, obviously, that creates some difficult situations for people who are in roommate scenarios. Uh, Does this give extra power to landlords? Do you think that landlords use this as a loophole to evict tenants and then raise rent higher than they would normally or otherwise be allowed to raise rent? If a tenant wants to leave, landlords can give permission for them to stay. And then some some landlords do that. In some cases, landlords have the right to say, listen, you were in a co-tenancy, your co-tenant gave notice to move out, so uh, this is what I can offer you. And then they make an offer. They say, you can either stay, uh, and then I'll give you consent, get another roommate, and keep the same contract. But... Uh, the landlord could also say, so because your co-tenant terminated his tenancy, yours is terminated too, and I could potentially make more money by offering a new contract to you or to someone else. And do you think that that happens, that landlords are doing that to, to make more money? Uh, of course. I mean, a landlord would love to make more money. In most cases, landlords will go for the kill. They will say, hey, um, you know, like I could potentially make more money. You're good, then I'm terminated, so bye. Right. And so, Emma, how can uh, tenants protect themselves from this happening to them and not ending up out on the street just because uh, one of the roommates chooses to move out? First of all, I would recommend not to sign co-tenancies. Uh, I would think that it is better to do tenants in common. As I mentioned before, tenants in common are tenants who live in the same rental unit but have separate agreements with the landlord. That is the best way to protect themselves. They could also uh, talk to the landlord and clearly say, if the landlord says, no, I'm not going to do tenants in common, I don't want to do two contracts, then the tenant can say, listen, there's a housing crisis, and you are setting us back by giving us a co-tenancy contract. I need you to consider this because we will end up on the street. So uh, that's Emma Lazo. She's a public legal education coordinator for the Tenancy Resource and Advisory Center. So I think that that's very uh, good advice. Just make sure you have your definitions right. You want tenants in common and not co-tenancy. And that gives you the protection you need for when your roommate moves out. This is a thing. These days, though, this reminds me of when you're trying to buy a house and people were going without the inspection because they were so desperate. And I thought this is a mistake. Like, this is going to be a problem. 
tenants are so desperate to find a place, will they really worry about the particular language on their lease agreement, right? Like they're going to feel just so lucky that they found a place at this point. Yeah. And the landlord's not going to stop them because they're not worried about filling the place if they have to evict that tenant or the tenant moves out. That's the problem here in Vancouver. But it's worth knowing, I think, Cindy. Oh, absolutely. I feel like it should be standardized, though. Like it just should be standard language as opposed to making it incumbent upon the tenant to find it. But excellent point that you make, Scott. Thank you so much for bringing that up. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Always good stuff to talk about. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've undoubtedly heard about the protests surrounding something called Drag Queen Storytime. In fact, the Coquitlam Library cancelled its upcoming event on October 21st due to what they called safety concerns. And this has been happening at other municipalities and other libraries as well. But, you know, it's worth asking the question, what exactly is being protested here? Like, what are these events really about? Well, our next guest has actually studied this and the history of events such as these. Dr. Connor Barker is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Faculty of Education at Mount St. Vincent University and joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. So how long have events like this been around? Well, they, they're relatively a recent phenomena, um, you know, so they started, I would say, in the last sort of 10 years or so uh, with a group in San Francisco uh, and parents who were just looking for, uh, you know, different ways to expose their children to different ideas around, around gender, uh, different expressions around gender. And so the idea of, you know, uh, combining you know, the the art form of drag with uh, children's literature and a family-based way in a public library space uh, kind of was born. It started out as Drag Queen Story Hour and uh, kind of public libraries have kind of taken it from there. And we've seen uh, this kind of spread through the United States and Canada. And it's been uh, largely very positive events for, for folks who have attended them. Okay. And let's just back that up a little bit. Maybe you could explain what is the art form of drag? Maybe people don't understand that part. For sure. And and I think that's where a lot of confusion around uh, drag queen story time might, might come in. Uh, I think most folks are familiar with drag, the art form that we would see, say, at a nightclub, right? Or, right. you know, uh, and, and so that, that type of art form is very adult. It's very uh, transgressive, you know, and it really pushes the boundaries. But just like any other art form, like photography, like comedy, like poetry, uh, you know, even television, you know, there there are different forms of this artwork that are appropriate for adult audiences and different forms of this artwork that are appropriate for children. Um, And so how I would describe drag uh, would be, you know, just really uh, an extreme version of how we uh, display gender or even just making it even larger than life, kind of taking these elements of what is masculine, what is feminine, and kind of blowing these things up. Uh, And and, um, you know, and again, uh, sometimes we do that for humor, sometimes we do that to shock. But in Drag Queen Storytime, it's actually to educate, uh, particularly for kids who are developing a sense uh, as to who they are. Right. Okay, so then where, like that all sounds quite reasonable when you put it that way, but what's happened then? Where has it gone wrong? When you look at these events and, and the controversy around them, what's happened? 
Well, I, I think that, you know, these concepts uh, of gender, you know, we're, we're really starting to talk about them now in ways that we didn't really talk about them before. Uh, I think there was, you know, uh, an assumption that, you know, your biological sex mapped onto uh, your social gender, the way that you would present yourself. But, you know, more and more people are kind of, you know, taking a look at that and thinking about it. And, you know, what does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a girl? Um, and, and, you know, and gender is, is one of those things that is a way that we communicate with one another. And uh, what we do in, in, in events like Drag Queen Storytime is we kind of explore that, you know, do all girls wear pink dresses? No, right? Do all boys like sports and trucks? No, right? But these are all things that uh, we have gendered in our society. And so I think kind of exploring that and saying, you know what, you know, what you're interested in, what clothes you wear, um, you know, the, these are things that are that are part of you and uh, you should be proud of who you are. Right. But somehow along the way, it's turned into or it's manifested into something completely different. People seem to have a different agree, impression yeah. of it. Absolutely. And, and and I think that that's um, part of the reason why we need events like this uh, is I think that people need to just kind of uh, expose themselves to some, some of these different some of these different ideas that are that are out there. And, and the thing is, is I think one of the fears that's out there is that there's this idea that, you know, if you expose children to, say, a drag queen or to somebody who's gender variant or somebody who is trans or non-binary, that that somehow will become some sort of social contagion or that will encourage a child uh, themselves to become trans or themselves to become non-binary. And, and the research is pretty clear on that, is that it doesn't have that effect. Uh, what it does do is for the children who may be already trans or non-binary, it gives them some role models, it gives them... Uh, uh, an example, it gives them a sense that, you know, uh, this is this is who I am and this is okay. And for kids who aren't, it helps them understand their, their friends and peers who may be trans or non-binary and just kind of say, oh, well, what's right for me uh, is right for me and what's right for them is right for them. And it actually leads into a more inclusive uh, an inclusive community for right. for those children. And when I think about it in schools, you know, more inclusive classrooms uh, where children are just more accepting of these differences that they see. But I wonder, is it too far gone at this point? Is it? It's become so politicized now. I mean, I, 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 the work I do is I don't give up hope on these things. Oh, I think okay, education <laughs> is, is a powerful thing. I think it's important for folks to have conversations. Uh, I'm currently having conversations. I have conversations with people who agree with me. I have conversations with people who disagree with me. And I, and I think that, um, you know, kind of to take a, a playbook from, from, uh, you know, gay and lesbian, uh, you know, rights and progression is how that really moved forward was uh, with relationships. It doesn't happen in big kind of political statements. It happens when people get to know each other. And so I think when folks start recognizing that, you know, there are non-binary people out there and there are trans people out there and there are different ways that even as men and women that we express our genders and how we communicate with one another, once we start realizing that that's just part of the diversity of being human, um, I, I think that that moves us to a better place. I just think right now there's, there's a lot of folks kind of stoking some fear around this uh, and a lot of that fear is just, is just really misguided. And I think the only way that we combat fear 
here is is through education, is through talking with one another, and is through building relationships with one another. Well, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. We appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, another great game by the BC Lions, a 33-30 win over the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And the Hamilton needed that game. Our coach, Rick Campbell, is with us now to talk more about that. Good morning, coach. Good morning. How are you today? I am good, thank you. First off, I have to ask you, how is Vernon Adams? He's actually pretty good. He's uh, in here today, and it's looking better and better. So um, we think he'll even be available this week, but we'll... uh, We'll practice this week and see how it goes, but there's no question he'll be ready to go for the playoffs. I mean, you were a little nervous, right, when you saw that happen? Yeah, you never want to see that um, when he when he goes down like that. And um, but the the good news is he came around really quickly, and he's uh, he's feeling better even than he thought he was going to feel. Okay, what I loved about this game is that like Hamilton obviously needed this much more than the Lions did, but the Lions never gave up. What does that say about the team? Yeah, I think this might have been my favorite win of the year from a standpoint of we really? lost a tough game. Well, we we lost to Winnipeg that previous week, and, you know, people can get down in the dumps over that. And, you know, you fly across the country to Hamilton. It's a hard place to play. And um, our guys got excited for the game, and as they should, and, and fought all the way to the end. And uh, just proud of the way they, they battled all the way to the end and found a way to get it done. And why is Hamilton a hard place to play? They have really good fans. They're really into it. Um, so it's a good. It's a tough atmosphere for the road team. It's it's fun, but it's a it's a tough atmosphere. And and Hamilton's been playing well lately. They're like five and two or something in their last seven games. So um, yeah, just uh, uh, really really proud of the way our guys battled back and was able to bounce back from the the loss to Winnipeg the previous week. Okay. Well, this week you've got another test here coming. It, this is the final home game to and this is going to wrap up the regular season, right? I know it's amazing. These weeks, these weeks keep uh, flipping by. I can't believe it's already going to be the last one of the regular season. But another big one. So our job on Friday is to win, and if we do that, we force Winnipeg to have to win at least one of their last two games. And really, that's what we want to do. We want to make them work for it all the way through. And then we're playing Calgary, who they're fighting for their playoff lives. So we're going to get their best shot. Um, but and again, I know our guys will show up and be ready to go. Okay, so at this point, we don't know whether Vernon Adams is going to be playing, right? He might might take a rest on this one. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything yet. We need to. This is our first practice day is today, so we need to get back out back out on the field. But we will play him if he's fully ready to go and fully healthy. We'll use him, and if he's limited in any way, then we won't. But we're going to determine that over the next couple of days. Also, what I loved about this win over Hamilton was that it was like a game winning kick at the end. Like that's always kind of fun when that happens. Yeah, it's literally a it's literally a walk off field goal yeah, exactly. they would call it. So there were zeros on the clock, and uh, Sean White's been doing great things for us all year. And you could tell he's the type of guy that won't get phased in that uh, in that big moment. And um, yeah, nothing nothing better on the road to kick a kick a field goal to win it and be able to literally walk in the dressing room and hop on the plane and head home. Love that. Okay, so this week is the big challenge here, Coach. Then keeping everybody focused on this last game and not thinking ahead to the playoffs. Yeah, we've been, our guys, I get credit, our guys have been doing pretty good of just staying in the moment. And like I said, our job this week is not worry about the playoffs. It's to, to get one more win and then make Winnipeg uh, have to work for it in the last two weeks. All right, that is the goal. Good luck. 
All right. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. We'll talk to you next week. That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. You heard them say they're going to be checking out Vernon Adams, but they're hoping it's not, you know, it's not that bad at all. Uh, One more game to go in the regular season. That is this Friday versus the Calgary Stampeders. And of course we sent, we gave a whole bunch of tickets away for that, right? So we're sending a whole bunch of people. So if you got those tickets from us, let's make sure you're cheering pretty loud. So everybody knows we are ready to send the BC Lions off into the postseason for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. These are tense times when we see what is unfolding and building in the Israel-Gaza war. We heard from Global National's Jeff Semple earlier about the wait that is going on right now for an expected ground invasion to get underway. And that has brought even more complications, even more concerns, with Iran now saying that it might have to actually get involved. But, you know, there have already been these stories about Iran's involvement in helping to support Hamas launch its attack on Israel. So now looms this threat about the war widening even further. Why are countries like Iran deciding now this is the time and they're going to get involved? And what is it like for people who are from Iran watching and seeing this happen, thinking, well, now their country might now be getting involved in this? Joining us now to talk about this is Camille, uh, who is an Iranian TV host living here in Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sammy. I appreciate you. What are you seeing happen within the Iranian community watching this unfold? Absolutely devastating. Um, like during the conversations that I have with some of the people from Iran, uh, it broke our heart because ever since we were kids, we've been taught to not like that country, not like Israel, be on the side of uh, Palestine. And right now, seeing this, those poor people on both sides, those civilians who are not related to any of this, they are just under some sort of attack. It breaks my heart. Have you spoken to people in Iran, and and what, like are they still hearing that message? Yeah, um, it's it's been always like that. Forty ish some years after the revolution happened, we've been forced to say death to Israel for longest time. So um, they are scared because if Iran gets involved, um, there is a possibility of uh, being involved, and um, our country can be bombed. There's already enough problems in Iran, aren't there, Camille? Like, you would think that they have enough on their plate already. Is this, what's it like to live there now with what's been going on? Um, It's been absolutely, again, um, devastating. Just, um, it's been a year and a few months right now after the Women Life Freedom uh, movement that happened uh, for women to um, help them gain some power over their body, over their choice of like what they were and uh, in past year the government has killed more than 2,000 people which is not little and um, they've been shooting people in the eyes they've been prisoning people so it's still nothing is normal they haven't gained any power over the government uh, they're still killing people uh, executing people so you can imagine how Still, we are dealing with that. And right now, people are worrying about the possibility of a war. What was it like for you? How did you get out? Um, it's been a long journey, but uh, I've been also under some um, the, like uh, control of government. I've been in um, police station three, four times. And because of morality police, my hijab wasn't covering my full head. And then um, they took me to the station, like scary 
But when I was 16, I decided to come to Canada as an international student. So happily, I was able to move here and immigrate. So when you came to Canada then, did that open your eyes, you know, so you could see the difference between what you had been taught versus what was really going on? Yes, of course. It was it was really different. Um, a country that respects your needs, uh, it respects you as a human, as a woman. You can have a voice, you can talk, um, you can have any position um, that you want. You're free to walk in the streets and hold anyone's hand without answering um, government guys who is this person. Um, it can be your dad, brother, or even your husband, but sometimes you get questions. Uh, who is this person? And you can be taken to the station and God knows what will happen to you there. Um, it's been a long journey and I've learned a lot. That's why I'm standing for this movement, Women Life Freedom. And so you also, when you came to Canada and, and you know you lived a bit of a different life, you, you encountered people from Israel. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I've been never allowed to learn about Israel. Um, we didn't know even that country existed. They had globes in school. The name of Israel wasn't on it. So you can imagine how curious a kid from Iran can be about Israel. And by the time studying and learning about the culture and the people of Israel, not the government, just the people, um, I created some sort of like joy and curiosity for that specific uh, culture and people. Are you concerned when you hear that Iran is getting more and more involved in the possibility of this? Like, what does that mean for the people in Iran? Um, it means many things. Um, economically, we are not doing fine. I know people who are wealthy right now, they are poor, basic as that. And then you can imagine how this will affect the people in Iran. Uh, people in government are two separate things, and I know um, the effect of this. I've lost my uncle due to the war of Iran and Iraq years ago. So um, right now, this can mean... Possibly I can lose more of my family who's living there and friends. Now, Camille, you're pretty vocal in talking about these issues, particularly women's issues. Could you go back to Iran? Um, Honestly, I don't think so um, because of the situations that I've been in. And I've been vocal, as you said, I wrote a lot um, about women life freedom. And they might allow me in, but they would never let me out. It's like a huge prison of people who are really aware. Um, I'm nothing, but there are people in the, um, the prison in Iran that they have multiple university degrees. There are women there for years just because they are fighting for their freedom. Not only them, but other women in Iran. So I don't think if there is a possibility for me to be free in Iran anymore. Do you think like this protest was gaining ground in Iran, the idea of women's rights? We were hearing more about it. And was the government concerned? Oh, my God, yes. And they've been really concerned and they've been uh, killing people ever since. Uh, it scared them. Uh, they weren't expecting women to stand up. But as people heard that they've been killing 16 years old, they've been killing 14 years old, that shows yet alone how scared they were uh, because what a 16 year old can do to you except going on the streets and shout about their needs but uh, that's all they can do and they have the power of guns unfortunately so Kimia, what what do you want people to know because we, we are all going to be hearing more about Iran getting involved in this 
war, which means that maybe your country is going to be going to war. But what do you want Canadians to keep in mind? One simple thing. People are not their government. Uh, Iranian people are not IRGC. We are not our government. Israeli people are not Netanyahu. Azad people and Palestinian people are not Hamas. That's so simple, but as somebody from Middle East, I beg people, I beg Canadians to just learn this. They've been forced to live in those lands because we're born there. We don't have a power to choose our government. And if they decide to involve in a war, you're so sad because my family has been in the war, but it's not our choice. We don't want that. We are not taking sides at this point. At both sides are humans, children, and women. And we absolutely feel sad and devastated and wrecked to hear this is happening and more scared if our government got involved in tech science. Camilla, thank you so much for your time this morning. Of course, I appreciate you. Oh, we appreciate you and being here with us. That's Camilla, an Iranian TV host, uh, came to Canada as an international student, now lives here in Vancouver. And you can you can absolutely sympathize with what is how they're watching this happen in their country. Their country is about to get uh, pulled into this by willingly the government there, uh, supporting Hamas, helping them launch these strikes against Israel, and now saying, well, if there's going to be a ground invasion, we may have to get more involved. The Americans are warning them not to, but it just does feel like this is getting bigger and bigger and Iranians like Camille feeling helpless as they watch this happening there. And of course, we did speak with Jeff Semple earlier. You can see his reporting and hear it on Global National this evening. He is in Jerusalem, uh, keeping an eye on that. We'll have the latest developments for you. This is Mornings with Simi. The promises get made, right, during election campaigns. I think we all know that. But there were some pretty big ones that were made a year ago during municipal elections, particularly in the city of Vancouver. Remember, ABC, which is now the council majority here in Vancouver, made a commitment to hire 100 police officers and 100 mental health nurses because they said they this is the way that we are going to make things better, even for public safety on the streets, get people the help that they need and that they deserve. So how has that been going? Well, we know the Vancouver Police Department has met that police recruitment target. They've hired approximately 100 new officers. But what about the other side of things? What about the very critical side of things of hiring and recruiting mental health nurses? How much progress has been made on that? Turns out not very much at all. Vancouver Coastal Health says they've encountered obstacles in recruiting enough nurses for that, managing to fill a boat, Nine and a half full-time positions. Now, that is not nearly the amount that we thought we were going to need to help put a dent in the problems that we've got out there. Shirley Chan is with us now, president of Pathways Serious Mental Illness Society. Shirley, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Are you surprised to hear about these challenges when it comes to hiring mental health nurses? Uh, Frankly, no. I mean, I I really wanted them to be able to hire the 100 mental health nurses, but we all were aware that there was a serious problem with finding enough nurses in the profession. Many have been uh, leaving the profession, and uh, I think that we certainly would like to see them succeed in this area. Okay, so you figured, no, this is nice, but I don't think it's going to work. Well, it was a bit naive, but it was a wonderful election promise, and um, you know, kudos to ABC for that, and for providing the funding. Uh, it's a little 
twisted to have the city fund the province to hire nurses, but it was a good effort. And I really wish that the province was able to hire more nurses. The Vancouver Coastal Health um, have been working on it. And I think, um, you know, the people in the community desperately need it. And we want more CAR 87s. But um, sadly, we're not there yet. Okay, because we're talking about it now like it's past tense. Is it still going on, though? Is the work still being done? Um, I would think so. Uh, I, I think that the province has made an effort to try and increase the amount of funding to for mental health and addictions. And um, Minister Dix has been working hard to try and uh, increase the number of nurses and doctors that are available to the people of the province. And so I am keep my fingers crossed that they will continue to put a huge effort into pushing to hire more mental health nurses for this badly needed service for our people. You mentioned the CAR program. What is that? Uh, The CAR 8788 is a program within the city of Vancouver which teams nurses with police so that when they respond to a mental health call, that they respond in a way that is more appropriate and with a better um, uh, skills and knowledge and understanding of uh, what situation they're walking into. So less likely to, we hope, um, find uh, a violent ending to that uh, encounter between uh, police and uh, someone w- suffering from psychosis. What we're hoping that is with the nurse along, that that can be better de-escalated and they have more skills to support and assess right. um, the person who's uh, in a crisis. Now, do police support that? Because, I mean, it must be hard for them to deal with these mental health calls. Better to have an expert come along with them, right? Uh, absolutely. The problem for police is that we've been They've been taking on responsibility for uh, mental health in a way that really they were not trained to do. And, you know, their primary responsibility is to public safety and to respond to any violent situations. Um, Someone in psychosis is not always able to respond to hear um, commands given, which is why having a nurse uh, do the outreach work is very helpful. And having them teamed with police makes a very effective team. Have you been able to see the kind of difference that program has made? Um, all the families that I talk to where they're, they call for help through 911, <clears throat> um, when they have the team come, they really feel that their needs are met in a way that when the police alone come, because quite often we get access to police more readily, um, that we do not because there's a certain amount of fear of having only police respond because we have seen situations where people have been um, badly hurt or killed uh, in the process of a police-only response. Does it de-escalate then when you can have a mental health worker along, just the idea that maybe that is what is needed in this case? Well, certainly someone who is not in uniform with, you know, armed, um, talking to someone who is in psychosis might be, in a better position uh, to do the outreach without harm to either either police, a health worker, or um, a person in crisis. So then, Shirley, what do you think would work here? If the desire is still there to make this happen, uh, is, is it possible to hire more people? What needs to be done? Well, the province has to, and Vancouver Coastal Health has to continue to work harder to recruit nurses and ensure that they have the kind of working conditions and, and compensation that, that um, they would expect. 
um, or, or want. The other is to ensure that our police in the teams are really well trained and have the kind of knowledge and expertise that makes them a good partner for a mental health worker. Like, we're only going to need more of this, aren't we, Shirley? I was thinking as well, there's municipalities who say they would love it if you called 911 and one of the options was mental health, too. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's not just Vancouver. North Vancouver has, in fact, implemented a good, they call it a CAR-22 program with Corporal Jones, who does the primary response. But we, we just need more of the team. Uh, the team approach is good. We do have some peer workers now, uh, which are just mental health workers without uh, police responding. And um, that, of course, means that they can't respond to anything that may have violence involved or any threat of violence. Um, So it's, you know, the police responsibility remains very strong for um, responding in a situation where there is a knife or some kind of threat. Shirley, so if we spend that money up front, to invest in the recruiting and the training and getting people uh, into those roles. Do you think it saves money in the long run? Yes, because we, um, when we escalate, then the trying to calm someone down again in an, in whether it's in hospital or, um, you know, in, in a police car or ambulance to bring them to the hospital um, means that, you're better able to treat more quickly. But our biggest problem is the fact that we lack really good early intervention and treatment for people with uh, mental illness. And that's where we need to put the emphasis is early treatment and response. Right, but it just sounds like overall that when it comes to dealing with mental health and supports, we need more people in the industry. Absolutely, and I would encourage um, any students to consider a career in nursing and um, mental health work. I think, yeah, that's a good idea, given the way things are going. Shirley, thank you for that. Thank you so much, Simi, for your time and for exploring the issue, because it is one that we desperately need to be able to address. It certainly is. Well, thanks for your time on this. This is Shirley Chan, president of Pathways Serious Mental Illness Society, talking about how where we've been lagging over the last year is trying to find those the mental health support workers that can ride with Vancouver police officers to respond to those calls where they need to help somebody who is uh, having mental health issues or in distress. This was part of the pro- promise that was made by ABC during the municipal election. 100 police officers, 100 mental health nurses. Well, the police officers part they got. Mental health nurses, that has been the hiring challenge where only about nine and a half full-time positions have been created in the past year. So there is still a lot more work that needs to be done on that front. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com.